So, welcome to Ordinary People, Voices Unheard. I'm with Joan Setka today, who recently went to Ukraine and is going to share some of her experiences and reflections on that journey. Start out, Joan, by telling me what motivated you to go there. Well, I, I think I will provide some context first sure. in that my ethnic heritage, not recently, but ethnic heritage is uh, 50% Slovak, 3 eighths German, and 1 eighth Polish. And uh, the German is actually Pomeranian, which is now part of Eastern Poland. So my heritage is definitely Eastern European. So my first trip out of the country when I was 22, which was a long time ago in 1982, in preparation for the trip, I, I called my grandfather and said, do we have any relatives in, in Slovakia and where do they live? And he said, well, the ones that the Germans didn't kill, the Russians did. So I <laughs> didn't have any relatives to visit when I was in the country. And it was still Czechoslovakia at the time, so it was uh, communist. And well, for one thing, it was my first trip out of the country, but the other part of that was I had never been in a place where I could tell that people were literally afraid. And so Poland, there was a, it was kind of like being in a giant housing project. It was really kind of, it had a gray quality. But, but when I went to Slovakia and then actually to, to Bratislava in particular, one of the things that I do, because I have, just have, I'm comfortable with my spirituality, I, I typically go to churches just to sort of find my space and meditate. Yeah. And one of the things I noticed when I went to a church in Bratislava is that actually just sitting down in a church and was an act of defiance. Mm. And I was like, dang, you have to be brave to go to church. This is this is a whole different ball of wax. And so... Why is that an act of defiance in those countries? Because you could tell that the, there would be consequences nice. for doing that. I mean, reading books, uh, there was a book that I read recently about Michel Foucault in um, Warsaw, this, which was his inspiration for writing his book, Crime and Punished. One of the things that this book divulged is how many people were all ratting on each other. And so there was this whole subculture of basically creating lack of trust and lack of community by people all getting these sort of minor benefits by... Snitching on their neighbors, Yeah, basically. exactly. Or snitching on their their friends, their in friends. quotation marks, or right. whatever. Right. So it, it's, it just destroys a sense of, you know, belonging. And I mean, it was an effective way to control people, but it's not congruent with my values, let's put it that way. Okay. So, you know, there's all sorts of things that are, have been really important to me. I've started following closely. I mean, obviously I followed the, the election in 2016 and, and did what I could, engaged where I could there. And, and um, I was aware of other things that were uh, injustices, but it was harder to find a place for it, for them. So like in Afghanistan, how people were treated, how women were treated, or it's, it's just a little, it was a little trickier to, even though I recognized that it was unjust, it was hard to find a place for me to contribute. So when the war in Ukraine happened, between my affinity with that region and the fact that I could see a place to contribute. You had a longing for that. Yeah. I, right. I started 
anything what I could do. Yeah. So, well, there's lots of ways. I mean, lots of donating. For me, when I, event, when it first started, there was lots of, well, if you feel bad about like weapons, just donate for, for um, you know, health, you know, or first aid and stuff like that. And I was yeah. like, you know what? These guys are getting shot. <laughs> so, yeah. and it's, you know, it, this is their land they're defending. So if I can donate for weapons, that's what I'm going to donate for. Yeah. So primary things I, I donate for are drones and winter clothes, food, and then just like sights, you know, being able to see the images at night. Those are all things that are really useful and just literally keep guys alive and because it's pretty much a although the Ukrainians are super resourceful and and very driven the fact of the matter is it's kind of an unfair fight if you just look at the size of the countries yeah it's a David and Goliath battle basically yeah totally so so I donated money and have donated money and then well there's a, a number of things I became aware of there was a organization in Lviv called Frontline Kitchen and you know and you're just looking always like how can I contribute how can I contribute and Frontline Kitchen was actually started in 2014 they've had a war going on since 2014 that was that was when Putin invaded Crimea oh so a little more context yeah in 1989 was the end of the former Soviet Union I have heard that the drawing up the borders was decided in a hunting lodge. They, the guys just went and uh-huh. hung out at a hunting lodge and sorted out what was going to be the new territories. When you say guys, which guys are you talking about? Uh, people that used to run the Soviet Union. So okay. police, police, rural guys. Okay, company. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, um, in 1990, and so the other thing, a little more context, yeah. is that Ukrainians. They call it the Russian Federation. Yeah. It, it's really the Russian Empire. The right. Russian Federation right. is the former Russian sure. Empire. Sure. And it was in 763 or something like that, Kiev was founded by basically warlords or whatever. And then, and so that would, and they called themselves the Rus. Yeah, they were actually Vikings. You knew this. Yes. <laughs> okay, cool. Anyway, in the, what, 1241 or, or whatever, the Mongols invaded and destroyed Kiev. Right. And so at that point, that became an opportunity for Muscovy, which was a city, which we call Moscow, to basically be a stronger city than Kiev because it's all sort of city-states at this point. And it was Muscovy until like the 1600s and Peter the Great, at which point it became Russia. So Russia is sort of an invention. But the roots of what calls itself Russia actually was sort of suborned by Ukraine was there a long time ago and okay. then and then Russia stopped or over overran it so to speak Russians so saying Ukraine was there first yeah, Russian right Ukraine was there first at any rate it's a very colonial thing in that of course part of colonial thinking is thinking that you are better than everyone else yeah and so Russians, and you can see this in Russian literature and so forth, uh-huh. are consider themselves as the the superior culture. So there's like the Russian yeah. soul. You see this in Dostoevsky and yeah. 
you know, you see it in Lermontov, in Pushkin, in Tolstoy. And I, I stopped reading Russian literature once I figured out that it was an expression of what happened in Ukraine. But at any rate, Ukrainians have been wanting basically their freedom and they had a separate identity for hundreds of years. They haven't had their own country for, I don't know, I don't know, thousands, but hundreds of years. But there's all kinds of, Russians consider them their little brothers, or li they call Ukraine Little Russia. And it, the words that they use to describe Ukrainians are comparable to the N-word in English. So it's a, it's, um, it's unfair. How about that? At any rate, so I, you know, all this stuff I kind of knew, but as this war has progressed, I know even more. So anyway, borders were drawn up. Uh, let's see, Crimea was given to Ukraine in 1991. Uh -huh. And so this whole Crimea is Ukraine. It's symbolic for Russia, but it's equally symbolic for Ukraine. Okay. So anyway, in 19... In 2014, Putin invaded Crimea, but he also invaded uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. And these were sort of industrial, industrialized places. They were pretty rich in resources and just general industrialization. And um, so they were desirable. So there's actually been a war going on since 2014. Right. Lviv Volunteer Kitchen started feeding the guys because the country was in disarray, just really corrupt. and not much infrastructure so it's really been it's really kind of this completely volunteer army right and right. and so there weren't that many volunteers from outside the country in 2014 but with this most recent invasion invasion there were lots more and okay. so I'm part of that okay. what La Vie volunteer kitchen does is it, it's just like in this basement of this apartment building in Lviv and Lviv is about maybe 60 miles from the Polish border. You can't, I think you can actually go directly now, starting this month, directly take a train from Warsaw to, to I think Kiev. But previous to that, you had to, and you can take a bus from Warsaw or Krakow to Kiev. How and difficult was it going over the border, crossing the border? I was lucky that it only took me two hours at the border. It depends. I they didn't ask a lot of questions as to why you're going in and what you're going to do. And they know. I mean, no, they know. You were with this organization, so. I was not with the organization. You just show up. You just show up. Oh, okay. And that's what I did. Okay. How did you find them? So I'm really active, or yeah. fairly, well, comparatively active on Twitter. Yeah. And so I found out about the Lviv Volunteer Kitchen, which... Yeah has been around since 2014, yeah. but there was a volunteer, Richard Woodruff, who came in, I guess, March or so of 2022. And so, because he spoke English, and because he was younger, so he was more tech-savvy, he started posting about the volunteer kitchen on Twitter. And then people were, you know, started talking about, can I do this? And then in addition to that, he started talking about resources so yeah. how can you stay how do you get there you know okay. the where can you stay just the logistics of it right 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 and so he made it easier right 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 
save the way for you, basically. Yeah, exactly. So he's still here. He's really active. He's separated from the volunteer kitchen, which sort of focuses on just making meals. And um, then he does whatever charitable work needs to be done. So he's been lots of orphans, not perhaps not surprisingly. So he's been, you know, uh, donations have been used to help an orphanage, taking the kids to the Carpathians, which are sort of the mountains, helping a blind school get a printer and things that they wouldn't ordinarily have. It's just a really poor country. People are great. They don't have a lot of resources. So anyway, Richard posted this. I went to the Frontline Kitchen. I did my got my Airbnb, and I'd originally planned on being there for two months. Yeah, there were air raids, and I'll talk about that later. That was, but at any rate, I ended up only going there for two weeks because my dog had health issues. But at any rate, so that's my story. So what did you do as a volunteer today? What, what, what was your okay. day-to-day life like? So for me, I really like to cook. Chopping vegetables is not a okay. hardship. Okay. And I'm like, okay. so when I found out that you, there's a place to volunteer, it's like, okay, that is something that... It totally is in alignment with what I am able and enjoy uh, doing. So, yeah. it's, you know, if you're going to volunteer, do something that you love. So, anyway. So, what they do is, I think they, I've heard that they are able to provide 20,000 meals a, a week, which wow. is pretty good. Yeah. So, everything, they make, they prepare meals. Yeah. So, they dehydrate everything. So, you chop carrots, then the carrots are boiled, then they're grated and then d- dried. So everything goes in, is, is sem- cooked or semi-cooked, and then put it in a dehydrator. Things are weighed out in package, put in plastic bags. You just add hot water, wait for five minutes, yeah. and then you have a meal. And these are, a lot of these things are like comfort food for Ukrainians too. So the guys just take packages, and then they go take them to the front line. Okay. So how did, how did it feel for you to be contributing this way? How did it make you feel? I was really happy to be doing something that was concrete. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it feels good to donate money. Yes. But there's a whole different level of commitment when you're actually physically at the place doing something. Right. How did the Ukrainian people receive you? They were great. It was interesting as I was taking the bus from Krakow, Krakow, to Lviv. I, I was sitting next to this woman who. I guess had married an, uh, an Englishman and so she was co- going back to near Lviv to visit her mom and I told her that I was going to go cook and she was just so she was very emotional mm-hmm. and I think it was the attitude like somebody cares about us and and I was stopped on the street and someone saw me it's pretty obvious the way I dress like um, people in Lviv dress a little more um, conservatively uh-huh. than, than California okay. and this woman s- just stopped me and started thanking me and I was like I'm just you know it's no biggie it really isn't a big deal compared to what they're doing and everybody has lost someone or you know everyone has some sort of trauma there so I'm like uh, you know you guys are great and I'm sorry I'm sorry I can't contribute more what was some of the stories people shared with you, anything that pops out at you, the stories that you've heard from people that you've had along the way? There's a lot of ex- exchange. So 
Lviv is pretty close to Poland, so we had, there were air raids when I was there, but there was no bombing happily, or no bombing in Lviv. I kind of dodged a bullet in that there was a pretty big hit a, couple, a week or so before I arrived, and then uh, several weeks after I left, there was a pretty big bombing too. They, they hit some supplies, which I guess one could argue was a legitimate target, but they hit some other things as well. They typically go at night, which is, the bombing is typically happens at night. I think that's in, in Lviv. I think when you're closer to the front line, bombing happens all the time. But that said, I was talking to one of the guys, there were actually two of the guys who both were, were volunteered to help clean up an apartment that had been bombed. And so it's kind of amazing that more people didn't die, but it was only, I mean only, obviously, one person I think died, but the apartment was destroyed and you know, you just think about how your whole life is, most of us, our whole lives are our, our lodging or they're an indicator of our lives. And so to lose your apartment in, in this particular way is pretty traumatic. And so Frontline Kitchen volunteered these guys, Alejandro and Alex, I think was his name, is from Scotland, to clean up the apartment. And it was just kind of a public service thing, but it, it's, it's really, um, it was, uh, I just appreciated that level of thinking about yeah. what actually affects people. So what are, your, what are your thoughts about this war? Well, it's got an interesting twist now that events are happening in the Middle East. Yes. I think Crimea is Ukraine. I think, you know, it's easy to start a war and it's hard to end it. Yes. I, I think the war has made people, if you are in Ukraine, you can't not have a position on this. Yes. And so I guess my feeling is I would go with the majority, it's not mine to decide, so to speak. Yeah. That said, I think, I know that uh, the Biden administration would really like Putin to just calm down and go back in his hole and, and um, just act like this thing never happened. And, but the fact of the matter is, because they don't want the, uh, the Russian Federation to be destabilized but it's an empire and it's all colonies and so the only way really it's going to end because Russia has been a colonial power in quotation marks for I don't know what is it like 500 years or something like that 400 years and so the only way this is going to end really end is Russia stops being a colonial power and that's would be my hope and then what will happen after that? I don't know. But we are, kind of looks like we're in a world war. <laughs> yeah. So you were also in Poland. So how has the war impacted the Poles? What was your impression of, of that? Well, I don't speak Polish. Okay. And I was on a, a tour. Yeah. So. Did they comment about the war? Your tour guide? Did they say anything about it? You know, I was, the person who was, gave us a, the herbal tour yeah. was talking about the first days of the war. My daughter, we were, we uh, went on a a wildlife tour for for uh, ten days before I shipped her back home, or she shipped herself back home, and then I went to Ukraine.
So one of the things that she wanted to do was do a herbal tour. So we, we were gathered up by a woman who has studied herbalism and we collected herbs and made soup and so forth. But anyway, so we were talking about the war with her. And one of the things that she was saying is that it was just the first weeks of the war. She just showed up to the Warsaw uh, train station and yeah. and asked what she could do. Yeah. She put her name on a list, and then they they just had a family for three weeks. Okay. And I guess the family then moved on, but it was just like there were hundreds, if not thousands, of people that did this, and so it was mm. just just what she did. Just took people in, strangers in, and put them up. You well, know, it was women and children, but yeah. Yeah. So I think they just, you know, they have a history with Russia, so they know yeah. what it's like. Right. So it's just what you do. I know it's impacting Polish society on many different levels. Did you, did you pick up any of that? I've heard stories that's impacting the employment uh, situation in Poland. Do you, do you want to comment on that at all? Those aren't conversations that I would have had. Um, I know, what is it, the Law and Justice Party was just defeated, but they were very much, uh, they were helpful to Ukraine. Yeah. That said, Tristan, Ukraine in some ways is much more liberal uh, than, than Poland. Okay. And so abortion is pretty much outlawed or has been pretty much outlawed in Poland. This is a Catholic country. Yeah. Is that why? The thing about Poland is that for centuries there really wasn't a Poland. And so the Polish church was one way for people to maintain their identity as Poles. Polish identity and Catholicism are kind of inextricably linked. And so the Law and Justice Program aligned, party aligned itself with the Catholic Church. Okay. And there you go. Anything else you'd like to share with the audience today about your experience on this epic journey or thoughts about the war, the conflict, a message you have for either of the leaders, Zelensky or Putin, (laughs) they're sitting in front of you right now, what would you tell them? It's over. I tell Putin it's over. Uh Why do you say that? It's not sustainable. There's nothing sustainable about this war. Last best hope is Trump. And I, it seems unlikely that Trump will be elected. There are not there are fewer and fewer true, true believers now, yeah. which is heartening for some of us. So, um, yeah, there's definitely people that are very friendly to Russia yeah. in our government, yeah. but I don't think that will prevail, and I think that the majority of Americans, uh-huh. you know, we like to be, in spite of our extremely flawed foreign policy, uh-huh. We like to be the good guys, yeah. and it's pretty easy to feel like you're one of the good guys if you help Ukraine. Right. Your sense of the, of, of the morale of the people in Ukraine, you know, a year into the war, by the time it was well, probably a year into the war, right? maybe over a year into the war. You went back in last June, is that was in June of 2023? I was in there in um, August. August, okay, so that's actually pretty recent. Yeah. Uh, what, what was the morale like of the people? I mean, it's. I think it's hard. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. I mean, if you, there's a famous c- cemetery in Lviv. If there's any number of images you can see of these cemeteries. And yeah. 
it's hard to see. There's just so many guys. There's just so many flags. Um, if they're a soldier, there's a flag at the yeah. at the at the grave, and it's there's a difference between seeing an image and actually being there in person. Yeah, and it's it makes a significantly greater impact to actually be there and realize that there's all these guys that have given up their lives for their country. Yeah, and. I don't know. We just, I think that we, we're old democracy. Yeah. I'm going to put democracy in quotation marks now. Yeah. But we take democracy and freedom for granted, and we're fools to do that. Is that enough? Yes, I want to thank you for your contribution today. That was awesome. Um, very, you know, brave and noble of you to head over there and, you know, actually contributed person. It's easy to donate money, like you said, it's easy to donate money. To actually go there and make a difference in people's lives is really a, you know, quite a, a sacrifice. You know, I just want to say, yeah. I'm just going to add this a little bit. Yeah. It's not just me. Yeah. This is a completely, there's two kind of wars going on. Yeah. There's the war where attack comes and high Mars and all that stuff yeah. come. And then there's thousands if not hundreds of thousands of people making their own little contribution yes and one of the things that I I feel strongly about sort of like the idea of union is that well I actually do believe that one person makes a difference but but that said there's there's a certain point where if enough people throw their their weight in one direction it makes a change yes and that's kind of why I was actually physically there 